first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hello, 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 hello. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday indeed, and welcome into episode number 99 of the Sports Kiki Podcast. My name is Alex Reamer. Big show for you today, of course, today it's Saturday, and it's episode number 99. Two reasons to celebrate big episode 100. I uh, have a great guest for you this week. Roger Brigham is a, uh, a trailblazer in the world of gay sports journalism. And by that, I mean he's uh, been an out sports writer for the better part of four decades. Anybody who's out in sports media can thank Roger Brigham. He retired this week after 46 years in journalism, most of which, as I said, were spent as an out gay man. Uh, Brigham came out when he was named sports editor of the Anchorage Daily News in 1982. He was 23 years old. Uh, in the mid-1980s, Brigham relocated to Los Angeles. Then he went to Albany, back to the Golden State, where he's lived ever since. Uh, Roger has strong ties to our community and our sports community in particular. It started when he wrestled at Golden Gate Wrestling in 2003, an LGBTQ wrestling club in California, and he's been hooked ever since. In 2011, he started the Equality Coaching Alliance, a network for out LGBTQ coaches and their supporters. So there's so much to talk to Roger about. Uh, he also has dealt with many serious health ailments through his life, beginning with an HIV infection around 1982, which have shaped a lot of his experiences and especially his relationship with Golden Gate Wrestling and the LGBTQ sports community. So there's so much to talk to Roger about, about his career, his life, uh, his stories as somebody who was an out gay man, not just in the 1980s, but beginning as an out gay man in Anchorage, Alaska. What was that like? Uh, and just his approach to journalism. So, so much to talk to Roger about. That's coming up momentarily. But before we do that, I do want to uh, raise the alarm about one issue that I wrote about this week, and that is the increasingly hostile atmosphere in China that LGBTQ people face, and really anybody who doesn't abide by gender norms face as the Beijing Olympics near scheduled uh, to happen next month. We're doing a diplomatic boycott here in the U.S., but uh, the athletes are still going. And uh, this fall, China, the ruling party, the Communist Party, uh, ordered broadcasters to put an end to sissy men from appearing on TV. That is a derogatory term. And what is sissy men? It basically is a term for men who bend gender norms, who embrace gender fluidity. Uh, it's really, it's it's quite antithetical to the traditional forms of masculinity, which are important in China. Uh, conditions are deteriorating in China, and like all authoritarian rulers, uh, what happens when things go wrong? Well, President Xi looks to uh, find scapegoats, and the scapegoat is anybody bending gender norms, gender fluidity, members of the LGBTQ community. Uh, so it's interesting. I did write a column about it, if you want to check it out. But it's worth noting that just in general, you know, 95% uh, 
of LGBTQ people in China are estimated to stay in the closet. Uh, China has sent, we've, we've, we've seen no out athletes from China since we started tracking it in 2000. Uh, a major Chinese athlete came out last year, a soccer player, Li Ying. Uh, she had to delete her post following a rash of incendiary comments and backlash. I think not coincidentally, she was not part of the Chinese women's soccer team at the Tokyo Games last summer. So the environment for gay people in China is not good at all. And there's rightfully going to be a lot of coverage around the just the, the, the raft of human rights abuses in China, uh, beginning with the genocide of religious minorities in the Western provinces to suppressions on freedom of speech, expression, go on down the line. And you can add the increasingly hostile environment for LGBTQ people as part of that. So hate to be a downer. But uh, I promise the next conversation with Roger uh, is ultimately uplifting. Uh, you'll feel empowered after hearing it. I know I feel empowered after talking to him. It's a sports kiki. Thanks for listening. And welcome back to the Sports Kiki podcast. And as I mentioned in the opening, very excited about our guest this week. He has quite a, quite a story, many stories, in fact, and we'll hope to get some out of him here. Roger Brigham, uh, who just retired from the Bay Area Reporter after uh, many decades in sports journalism, a well-deserved retirement. Uh, Roger, thanks for coming on the show. How are you, sir? Doing great. Yes. So uh, I have so many questions to ask you, as I was just saying, but here's the first one. How does it feel to uh, put the pen down or at least not have to pick up the pen, uh, you know, every day? <laughs> uh, a, lot of, a lot of mixed feelings. I mean, this is kind of a forced retirement. Uh, health issues just uh, make it hard to, to right. stick to a, a, an external commitment. Uh one of the great things about working in journalism was uh, it, it cures you of uh, writer's block um, for two reasons. One is that uh, if you don't write, you don't get paid. So that's a great incentive. And the other True. is that uh, when you're a, a working journalist, uh, you always have a, an agenda. So you know what you're going to be writing about. You don't have to stew and, and try to come up with something. You know the subject is there in front of you. Uh, Going on and just doing freelance on your own is a little scary, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's fun to have the freedom. Uh, you know, I freelance a couple times. The thing that I struggled most with it as a full-time thing was that you're always working, but you're also simultaneously looking for work. It's uh, But it's increasingly becoming more common in the industry, as you know. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not going to be looking for work anymore. So. No, 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 yeah. no, no. No, it's in general, though. But no, hey, I look forward to reading what you come out with next. Uh, I loved your farewell comm, as I mentioned. And, you know, you did mention uh, the health issues that you've had. You know, you've had, uh, you know, I guess my question is just going through everything. How did you stay focused on the writing? Because, as you know, this is not a job that you can do uh, half-assed. Um, well, it was easy to stay focused on the writing uh, because, since fourth grade, I, I thought of myself as a writer. It's mm -hmm. uh, integral to my self-identity. Uh, and so, you know, the, the focus was always going to be there. The, the difficulty was in execution. There, were, there was about a two-year period in there in the late 90s where I couldn't uh, write creatively. And that was probably the, the low point for me. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I was 
I, I could put together a sentence, but I couldn't do anything creative for, for two years. Hmm. Um, uh, so that, that uh, really does challenge your sense of identity, but it just made me more committed to it, to work and, and fight through things. Um, and, 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 you know, part of the theme of my column was that uh, the worst thing you can do with adversity is give into it. Uh, so you have to try to take the positive out of it and, and just keep going. Um, you know, I've been a columnist now for 15 years, and that's just part-time employment. You know, that's, that was a very small uh, bit of income to help supplement things. Um, but just keeping practice, keeping doing right. that, made it possible for me to do so many other things as a volunteer because mm. I was keeping my skills sharp right and it really got you connected to the lgbtq sports community which i know has been so vital to you yeah it, and that whole process of, of coming into it as a disabled person uh and, and finding a welcome home there really uh re, refined my appreciation for sports i'd always had a very hyper competitive view of sports i've been very uh, cutthroat competitor myself as an athlete. Uh, and I, I kind of forgot that I every blessing that sports could give me, it gave to me early in life. And I was able to have all those life lessons very early and, and use them to, to power my career. And getting involved with the LGBT sports community, I, I realized that so many of, of my colleagues uh, hadn't had that kind of blessing in, in, in their youth. Um, and it was important to have the programs there so that they could test themselves in sports as, as adults. And I saw so many people become empowered through the inclusive sports movement. And that made me really committed to, to do all the work I could for inclusive sports in general and the, the gay games sports in particular. Ah, you were an athlete growing up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even when coaches didn't want me to be, I was an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> I see that. And, uh, you know, you so you joined the Golden Gate Wrestling Club in 2003. You write in your farewell piece, not because I was gay, but because it was the only legitimate wrestling club I could find that had the patience and desire to work with a 50-year-old wrestler with artificial hips. Uh, my first question about your experience there is, what made you want to get back into the ring at that stage in your life? Well, it took two years, basically, to to heal from the uh, hip surgery. Um, and what I found at the towards the end of that recovery was that I couldn't run. Um, and I don't mean I, I could only run badly. I, I know I just flat out can't run. I still can't run. Um, and that was strange because as an adult, uh, all the sports I participated in were speed-based. Uh, rugby, softball, baseball, basketball, uh, soccer, it, everything, my key asset out there was that I was the fastest guy in the field. And all of a sudden, I went from being the, the best trained, uh, the strongest, the fastest, um, albeit tiny, uh, to being the, the worst trained, uh, the slowest, um, <laughs> and the weakest. Uh. Um and so I, I did. I sat down. I looked at a list of sports that were offered by Team San Francisco, and I had never been involved in gay sports before. Um, 
and I went through the list and I kept saying, no, that's got running, that's got running. And I looked at powerlifting, but for me, powerlifting has always been training. I do powerlifting so I can do other sports and I, I did not want to be competing in it. Then I looked at wrestling and I realized that uh, I never had to run anywhere on the mat. So it was going to be very painful because of how important hips are in wrestling as they are in most sports. But I figured if I could modify all of my footwork, I might be able to do something with it. So I always loved wrestling. I, I, I coached wrestling years ago in Alaska. I thought, well, why not return to it and hmm. uh, see if it would work? Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 did, I did want to ask you about living in Alaska real quick. What was, what was that experience like on a much lighter note? Well, Alaska was was very interesting for me on on a number of levels. One is that I wasn't really sure about my sexuality when I moved there. Huh, okay. Uh, a, a, a year or so after college. And it's a strange place to explore your sexuality. Right. Uh, uh, when I lived in Kodiak, for instance, uh, I never had any gay contact there at all because uh, I wasn't sure of the circumstances in which an encounter would occur. It's far too easy in Kodiak to get rid of a body. So I, I didn't <laughs> want to risk anything while I, I was there. But Alaska uh, is is wonderful in that it's very much uh, uh, a culture of, of, of independence, of not wanting to be told what to do by anybody. Uh, and in, 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 it was actually a very interesting place to come out when I started to do so in uh, Anchorage. Um, and the thing is, is that if you have motivation and you have talent, you can do almost anything in Alaska you want to be. At the age of 23, I became the editor of the daily newspaper. And that just doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. In the world, wow. Um, that's uh, and this is what mid nineteen eighties, right? Uh, it would have been early uh, late seventies. I, I moved to Alaska, right? Uh, and I moved to Kodiak in uh, uh, three weeks, I think. So after I moved there, I became the, the editor of the paper. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I was in Alaska from seventy eight to. Uh, um, 77 or 78, something like that, to uh, 1986 when right. I moved to Los Angeles. Right. I have it right here. Then you wrote for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. But um, obviously being in L.A., okay, that's something. But just so, yeah, so it's the late 70s, early 80s. You are exploring your sexuality in Anchorage. You know, I got asked, Roger, did you get any action? <laughs> what was that? Well, of course I did. <laughs> I mean, I I would take I would take my boyfriends to the sports events I was covering, um, you know. Yeah, I love it. I I, I had my my first uh, long term relationship there. Turned out to be with an alcoholic. That's a oh. an experience I will never want to repeat in my life. Um, yeah, I, and I made a lot of wonderful friends there. Uh, I mean that that's in a completely different topic. I won't spend a lot of time exploring that sure. but uh alaska i what i love most about anchorage and the gay scene in anchorage it was very small there were only a couple of bars or at most any time there are three at the but the community was so united uh 
there was not room for discrimination within the gay community. Gay men and lesbians were in the same bars. We socialized. Um, I used to, it was very funny at the at the Daily News. Uh, my floors would get cleared off in the composing room faster than anybody else's, and I'd be out of the room before all the other editors. And the other editors, for the longest time, couldn't have figured out what it was. And I finally explained it to them that many of the women who worked in the composing room were lesbian, <laughs> and they wanted to get me through so I could go have supper and meet them up at the dance club so we, we'd get dance at the disco clubs. Um, so being gay was quite the benefit in that, in that instance. Um, so anyway, I... I was just used to a, a very integrated uh, gay community. And when I moved to California, I was dismayed to see at that time such huge divisions mm. uh, between between gays and lesbians. They, they didn't socialize. There was discrimination uh, against women in, in, in the bars and, uh, and racial discrimination. I was just absolutely appalled that the gay community could have so much discrimination within it, you know, I, I was, I was shocked. I, I, I could not believe it. Mm. Do you, so, do you think that's gotten better through the years? Uh, well, right now with COVID, it's a little difficult to tell, but um, I guess it's gotten better. The, some of the horrific barriers aren't there. Socially, I don't know that it's gotten much better. I do know that uh, a lot of uh, healing was done uh, because of the uh, support uh, that lesbians provided gay men when uh, AIDS struck. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think there were a lot of strong relationships then. And I've been very blessed since being here uh, to have as many lesbian friends as I have gay friends. And, you know, it's, all the lines get blurred for me. Um, but I still I still see signs that uh, that socially at least there seem to be a, a lot of division, uh, a lot of uh, lack of drive to to cross barriers. Mm -hmm. I'm not I, I'm 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 an old man now. I'm out of touch with stuff. I don't know why that is, but I, I still see it. Yeah. And I did want to mention. Uh, so you yourself, uh, you were infected with HIV sometime around. 1982. Um, right. Yeah. And then the medications you were taking, you call them the AIDS cocktails, averted your death, but triggered those unending series of health challenges that you were talking about. Right. Yeah. Just, yeah, I guess just take the listeners through that journey for you. Well, it, it was very strange because, uh, you would deal with one illness and something else would come up. Probably the low point of it was when uh, I, I got CMV retinitis and started to go blind. Um, and psychologically, that was probably the worst because I had seen friends of mine earlier get that uh, from when I lived in uh, uh in Alaska, I would come down. I'd visit Kent friends in California, and I, I, you know, I lost so many friends at that time, and I'd seen them go through all this stuff. And, and retinitis was always one of the, the telltale ones that came towards the end. And the difficulty 
with the retinitis was that the medications uh, that you would take to fight that, you couldn't take them if you were taking the medication to fight your AIDS. And anyway, so it, I, w- I was really worried about that. But that occurred more or less simultaneously when the cocktails came along. And uh, so we, we were able to catch the retinitis very quickly and, and limit my, my vision loss to uh, peripheral vision in my left eye. But, you know, it was, I, I was just so weak. I had catastrophic weight loss. I went from a very, very buff 155 down to 108 in about two or two and a half months. Wow. Um, and, and I had lesions. I was uh, nothing to look at. I hated having my pictures taken. Uh, and I think actually probably a lot of people who died of AIDS, um, a lot of people who committed suicide when they were very ill, did so uh, because they they feared of what was going to happen as their diseases progressed, and as they lost their looks, they lost their health, and so, and they did not want to deal with the pain. Um, I think being an athlete saved my life in many regards because first off, when the virus did attack me, it did not go for my vital organs; it went for my, my muscles and. Uh, wiped them out and so most of my internal organs survived relatively intact Um, and the other is uh, the discipline um, that you learn in sports uh, helps you when your doctor says you must take this medication every eight hours and you cannot take it with food and you cannot miss it and you cannot change the schedule and so forth I, I belonged in a couples club and we would have potlucks and everybody knew to let me have my place in the line because <laughs> I had to time my meals as much as I had to time my medications. Um, and, you know, I, 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 if I had to get up there and eat right then, they, they let me up there because they, they knew it was necessary. So having that kind of discipline um, helped to save my, my life. And then the final thing is just that you have a fighting spirit. is nurtured when you're in sports, and you need that when you're when you're challenged on that. And I, and I, I think I talk about that in the, the column that that is one of the benefits everybody can get out of sports is just learning how to fight, learning how to face tests, and not fold. Yeah, and that that goes to something I wanted to ask you because what I find so impressive about you know I hear your story and other stories like it is like just how do you keep the the mental fortitude to keep going through the legions and the blindness? I mean, it's something that someone like you know I, I can't even conceptualize it. Uh, I'm not sure what your question is. Just talking, you know, <laughs> just, yeah. just just chatting. Uh, well, well, and you have to realize also that when you're working in sports or you're competing in sports uh, you keep getting a chance to meet wonderful people because they're there trying to do something positive in their lives uh, and you get to share in that uh, one of the things that I emphasized when I was a sports editor uh, was staff development a lot of sports editors would just go ahead and take the best assignments for themselves uh, and, and leave the lesser things for their uh, staffers and for me I always thought I could get more uh, value for my newspaper 
if I gave the experience to my reporters and I, I worked with them to, to develop them into becoming more skilled reporters and, mm. and we get longer term good benefits out of that. So I always emphasize uh, staff development and that ties into what I was doing in sports. I, I always loved coaching so much um, and a huge reward, the huge rewards I've gotten out of sports has not been about what I've been able to achieve as, as an athlete, which is fairly modest, but the success in life I've seen from the athletes that I've helped train uh, from when they were very young men and women uh, into the successful, productive adults, happy adults that, that they were later. And my, go ahead. So my uh, the best times now are, are reading on, on social media what's going on in the lives of uh, athletes I coached in Alaska back in the 70s and 80s who have kids of their own now and, and, and to see the successes in life. Um, when I returned to coaching with Golden Gate Wrestling in 2003 and then when I became a high school coach again in, in 2007 at Mission High School, I got in contact with some of the wrestlers I had coached Hmm. Uh, Alaska years ago and for me at that time uh, they were just really wonderful kids to work with and I always thought them, that their lives were probably very happy and, and quite perfect um, and I shared nothing of my life with them uh, because that was almost impossible to do as, as a, a, a gay coach back in the 70s and 80s yeah. on the frontier uh, when coaches would ask me if I were gay I'd tell them yeah and, that was no problem, but I wasn't going to talk about any of that with uh, with with minors. Mm-hmm. So, so that meant that I was holding back, uh, and and I probably was not as good as coach for them as, yeah. as I okay. could have been. Years later, in in San Francisco, I was very open, uh, and kids would ask me about uh, what it was like uh, growing up, knowing I was not able to get married and. Uh, why didn't I adopt kids at, at times? And how did I meet my husband? Um, they wanted to know all about my life. And, and we were able, I was able to talk with them about their lives more. So it was very eye-opening for me to get in contact with, with wrestlers that I had coached back in the 70s and 80s. And I w- realized then that for some of them, their lives were sheer hell at the time. And the only point of sanity in, in their day-to-day for most of them was wrestling practice. Hmm. Um, and to see the success that they built on uh, from, from all that, it, it's just so rewarding to know about and to see the genuine friendship that I have with them now. Uh, again, those are the kind of things that keep me going in sports. Yeah, that's incredible. That really is. And uh, and I love what you said about, too, you feel like you became, you know, the best coach you could be when you were living, you know, as, as an out gay man. Like Luke Prokop, the pro hockey player who came out this summer, said a similar thing. He felt like he was skating better than ever and playing better than, than ever after he came out. I think it really speaks to the weight that's lifted off your shoulders in all facets of your life when you come out and start living openly. Well, yeah, I mean, repression takes effort. Yeah, right. So. Right. 
Um, and I do want to ask about the Equality Coaching Alliance. I mean, we know them. We know you guys very well here at OutSports, the communications network for 1,000 LGBTQ coaches and their supporters. Uh, you started that group. What has it meant to you over these years? Well, it's kind of strange. that I mean, 2011 uh, is when I, I started that, and I did it as part of my volunteer work for the Federation of the Gay Games. Uh, I was on their external affairs committee in charge of relations with groups in North America. And as I was contacting various groups, I realized that there were, there were groups that were focused on, uh, that, that would include LGBT sports. There were things that were to address athletes. They were, there were organizations that would address sports as, as part of something else. But there was nothing focused on career professionals in sports. Mm. Uh, the people who, who hang around more than four or eight years and uh, are actually involved in policy making, uh, execution practices. Um, and so that's why I, I started to figure out well, how many gay coaches are there out there? And I only knew two or three at the time. So I figured, well, let's start. And I just went ahead and created it um, just so I could start communications among people. And, of course, uh, some early people on there were Helen Carroll and Charlie Sullivan and uh, Kirk Walker. Mm -hmm. And they they started bringing in more and more uh, coaches. Um, and the thing grew organically. And what I wanted was I wanted these people who were there who, who would be the most effective at changing culture within the sports to be able to talk with each other and come up with ideas for about best practices and, and what, what could we do to, to change things. And I did that knowing that I did not have the bandwidth to do it myself. I didn't have the bandwidth to lead it uh, and... It's very strange when you're on the downward arc of, of your life and your career, you can have a feeling of irrelevance because mm. you think, wow, I can't do that mm. stuff. You know, this is what I would, if I were a younger person, I was just saying, this is what I would do. But ECA gave me a way to start the motion um, and get it rolling. And when you do something like that, what you have to tell yourself and you have to stick to it right at the outset is don't dictate where it goes. Don't meddle when you see it goes a direction you don't like or, or is not exactly the one you would choose. Don't try to micromanage it. Encourage it. Give it whatever advice it asks for. And you got to let it go, though. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those um, – Happy, sad things. I, I was very happy to do it, but sad at the same time I was doing it, realizing that I wasn't creating it for me to express myself to, but to have a place for other people to express and uh, carry out their work. So it was, it, that's been a really good feeling to, to do this yeah. late in my life. Yeah, you've come around to embrace that feeling. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. And I mean, you know, something that gets asked a lot by people is, you know, why is it important? You know, so you're gay and coach in sports. Like, why do you need to connect with each other? I don't connect with every, you know, straight coach in sports. 
<laughs> so I mean, because there are so many. But uh, yeah, why why is it important for members of the community in sports to connect with each other? Uh, yeah, as they do through your group and many others. Well, and let me take my sport as as just as an example. In wrestling, uh, kids come into uh, my wrestling room at the end of, of the day, and. I tell them, you've been taught all day long not to fight. And you're coming in this room, and I'm teaching you to fight. And when I'm doing that, I'm not teaching you to fight for the sake of fighting. I'm teaching you, one, how to fight effectively. I'm teaching you how to fight in a way that is not self-destructive. And we're having a conversation about what are the things worth fighting for. I told them, if all I teach you do is, is how to shoot a takedown, then we're wasting our time. Uh, we, we've got to be focused on, on much more important things than that, which is about how to become responsible, productive adults, how to fight for our families, how to fight for our community. Um, and it's, it's about believing in themselves. There are a lot of kids that the most important thing you can do for them as a coach is to tell them, I believe in you. Mm. And if I believe in you, you should believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, you should invest in yourself um, because it'll pay dividends. It'll it'll come back, whatever you put into it, it'll come back tenfold in, in karma later on. And those are conversations that's hard to have in an agenda-driven school day. Those are conversations that's sometimes hard to have at home with parents who may or may not be absent, who may have to be away all the time working their asses off just to hold things together, uh, may have issues of their own and not see it. Um, so sports in that place is just like one last possible safety net in their lives to help them achieve the best. And it's really, really hard to have that conversation or to use an example from your life if you can't tell them who you are, if, if, right. if they can't know who you are. Right. Oh, without they, a doubt. Um, in, administrators in the uh, San Francisco school, school district told uh, our coaches at Golden Gate Wrestling that for years they had had a terrible time dealing with homophobia at Mission High School. And... They said it was virtually eliminated the day Golden Gate Wrestling started working with their wrestling team because <laughs> nobody wanted to go up to the wrestlers and make fun of their coaches. <laughs> it was not. It was not going to end well. And you know, I never had to say anything about the evils of Prop Eight or anything like that. Uh-huh. My wrestlers were coming up to me and telling me about the conversations they were having in their families, and you know the. Everything that they were doing to go out there and, and campaign against it, and so forth, and they were always asking me questions about did I want, you know, how important was it that I was finally able to get married, and yeah. uh, what what feelings did I have about the the, the fact that I couldn't, you know, and that I grew up thinking I would never be able to get married. So now. This is another sign of being an old man. I've forgotten how we got onto this. No, uh, we uh, no, you know, I've forgotten too. So, so that makes both of us. But I, I did want to ask you, you mentioned your husband a few times. How did you guys meet? What does he meant to you? Uh, and yeah, what did it feel like to finally be able to marry? 
Oh God, do I tell you a real version or do I tell you do I tell you the version I tell other people? No, this is no well, we, we only say, do real here. Come on, Roger. This is a okay. real show. Okay, so we met in the dark squeezy leather bar in New York. I love that. The Eagle. <laughs> I love oh the, yes, the I meant the Eagle, yeah, yeah. And uh he's it, it's very funny in the very first conversation we had, uh we were exchanging our, our names, and I told him, my name's Roger, Roger Brigham. And I didn't see any glimmer of recognition in that name there. So I said, you know, like Brigham Young? You know no. who Brigham Young was? And he said, oh, yeah, he was the star of Father Knows Best. <laughs> and it took me a while to make the connection from Robert Young to Brigham Young. Yeah, well, it's, I, it's good you made that connection. Moment, it, at the moment Eduardo said that, I thought, no, I could probably marry this guy. And that was in March 1991. Wow. And we've been together, it'll be 31, 31 years and a couple months. Wow. Um, and I, I think one of the great reasons why we work is we're both very creative, but we're creative in very different ways. Um, Eduardo is a musician. He's a trained classical pianist, uh, studied in Puerto Rico, performed at Carnegie Hall. And uh, as, as a musician, he will work on a piece over and over and over and over, uh, seeking for perfection on it. And he, he'll build it into a repertoire, and that's something he's going to come back to, and he's always refining, always trying to find something new in it. And as a writer... Uh, particularly as a journalist, I would write something and 24 hours later it's gone and I can't come back to it. I have to go on and try to recreate it again. So it, they're both creative processes, but they're very different. Mm. And those characteristics pop up in, in, our, in our lives. Uh, uh, Eddie does so much refinement in, in the things that we have in, in our life. Uh, he's got so much detail and color uh, to our lives. Um, and I will tell you the rule that one of the other secrets is what I refer to as the rule of 50-50. And he hates it when I say this. But half the time, Eddie just does what I want when I ask him to. And then the other half of the time, he just does it without my having to say anything. So that's the rule of 50-50. I always get what I want. <laughs> Well, that's something that we can all aspire to achieve. Uh, Rod, Roger, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, yeah, this was a great conversation. Uh, how can the listeners find your farewell calm and other work uh, you may have written over uh, all your amazing years in journalism? Uh, well, there are a few different ways. Uh, to find the column, uh, they can read the Bay Area Reporter online, which is ebar.com. Uh, and then they can also do Google searches on my, my, my name, and they should be able to find byline stories of, of mine. Uh, and uh, one of the books I'm working on right now is going to be an annotated uh, collection of a lot of the articles I've written over the past four decades, uh, in which I'll, with each article, I'll talk about what was going on in my life at that time, what was going on in the world, 
and some of the decisions I made and why I wrote it that way are the things I was referring to. Uh, I, I've been doing a lot of research on that lately and been interesting seeing the progression of my work, of my work through the years and how I changed as an artist um, and reflecting on that. I think there are like lessons to come out of that. Amazing. Roger, thanks so much for coming on the show. All right. My pleasure, Alex. Take care. All right. Thank you all for listening. Episode 99 of the Sports Kiki podcast. Thanks again to Roger Brigham for coming on the show. Check out his work and his farewell column with the Bay Area Reporter, where he's worked since the mid-1990s, the the most circulated LGBTQ publication in the U.S. They have a long history there in the Bay Area. Uh, Enjoy the week. Should be a big week in gay sports. Leah Thomas competes today, Saturday. The uh, dominant trans swimmer for UPenn. She's back in the pool. They have a meet. Uh, we'll have full coverage next week on Outsports. And Carl Nassib, the Raiders, plays Sunday night against the Chargers. Will they get in the playoffs? It's winning, get in. Oh, boy. So, uh, oh, that'd be just great to happen. I mean, I love watching Justin Herbert. He's unbelievable. But, I mean, okay, player on a playoff team, that would definitely dispel the myths that you can't win with gays. As Megan Rapino once said, you can only win, get champions. So, so long. Talk to you next time.